Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 29. Three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts, and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we see the words of Agur this morning, calling us to, uh, continuing to call us to humility, uh, he states three creatures that may not, uh, at face value, have, uh, have much in common. A lion, a rooster, a male goat. Uh, but these three things among their species uh, are all kingly in some way. They all have some form of kingliness, some form of stateliness, of rule. Of course, the lion, uh, we see the picture throughout Scripture of the lion as the uh, representative of the king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, David is, is the lion. Uh, Jesus is uh, coming to fulfill that uh, Davidic uh, kingship. The Rooster. You may not often think of a, a rooster as kingly, but, uh, but if you see a rooster walking around, they, they have a kind of strut, a kind of ceremonial strut, and, uh, and the, other, uh, the others around them are certainly going to recognize some kind of rule. Uh, a male goat uh, leads the flock, and the others follow. And he sums up these three uh, with a, a king, a king whose army is with him, a king in his full strength, the strength of the king, is his army with him. Uh, a king who has no army or a king who has no kingdom to follow him is not a great king, is not a mighty king, is not a king that anyone would fear. Well, we are called here to humility. We are called to uh, follow the true king. We are called to follow King Jesus. We are called to be loyal to him, to be subject to him. Uh, we are called to lay down our lives uh, in service of the king. And we are called to be the army of the king. Uh, Jesus is not a king who keeps all of his kingly glory for himself, and, uh, but rather he, he bestows it upon those in his service. His glory is his army that surrounds him. His glory is his church. We are a royal priesthood. We are a kingly people because we are united to the king. And so as we come to confess our sins together, let's recognize that we are we are called to humility, to subjection to the king, and we are called to be fulfilling this role as, as his kingly people. So let us kneel, if you are able, as we confess our sins to God. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon text this morning is going to pick up in John 6, 
in the gospel lesson that we heard, and we're going to be considering the, uh, the greater context of, uh, of our lesson this morning as well, John 6 as a whole, and what's going on in, in this, uh, what's called the bread of life discourse. And so to gain some of the uh, greater context, we'll begin reading uh, earlier in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose... Sorry, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one, can come to, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The lectionary texts have been in John 6 for several weeks now, and uh, a reminder for us of where John has taken us thus far may, help, may be helpful for us as we seek to understand what the disciples referred to as Jesus' hard sayings in our text today. In the first part of this chapter, we saw Jesus leading the crowds in a sort of refresher course on who Israel is as a people. If you remember, he uh, was in the wilderness, and the crowds had gathered around him, and they ran into a problem of a lack of bread. Everyone was gathered out in the wilderness, and people were hungry, but there was no bread. There wasn't enough bread to go around. Jesus supplies miracle bread for them in the wilderness, just as God did for for their fathers with the manna in the wilderness. He was reminding them that they are the people of the Exodus and showing that he has come to fulfill the Exodus. This is part of what you could call John's tour through the tabernacle that he's taking us through in his gospel. John uh, is, is offering a picture of Jesus as the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He, he tells us in the prologue that Jesus has come uh, to dwell among us, to tabernacle among us, to pitch his tent among us. Uh, he shows in... Uh, Uh, throughout the beginnings of the gospel, that Jesus offers to Israel what has always been offered to them in the tabernacle. He gives, uh, he gives uh, the, uh, he takes the uh, water 
of the ceremonial washing and transforms it into uh, the wine of the feast. He, he tells uh, the Pharisees in the temple that his body is the true temple, that his body is going to be destroyed and raised up on the third day. And he goes throughout, throughout John's gospel showing that he is the fulfillment of everything that's offered in the tabernacle. And here he's offering manna, the true bread. If you remember in the Ark of the Covenant that was placed in the uh, most holy place in the tabernacle and in the temple, there are three gifts that God uh, places there. There's the, uh, the word, the law, the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. Uh, there's the uh, manna uh, preserved from in the wilderness. And there's Aaron's rod that blossoms, which could be a picture of of glory for humanity, of authority. Uh, Jesus is coming to fulfill all of these. Then after the feeding of the 5,000, in John 6 we continue, Jesus begins uh, his bread of life discourse, part of which we read this morning. And in this discourse he tells the crowds that he himself is the true bread of heaven, that he's come to give himself for the life of the world. He explains that the work that God has called us to is to believe on him whom he has sent, to believe on Jesus. And he tells us that it is, in fact, God's work that, uh, that, to give us this faith, that God draws him to himself, to Christ, who is the true revelation of the Father. In the latter portion of this chapter, we see Jesus developing further his identity as the bread from heaven. Here he expounds for us, what it means for him to be the bread of heaven, what it means to be the bread of life, and how we receive this bread, how we receive him as the bread of heaven. He shows us in this discourse what it means to commune with the body and blood of the Savior, what it means to receive him in faith, and yes, what it means to come to this table and fellowship with him in the Eucharist. First, we see Jesus emphasizing uh, the descent of the living bread. Jesus makes a uh, big deal in this discourse that uh, he is the bread that came down from heaven. We see that over and over. He's the bread who came down from heaven. He's come from the Father. Just as the manna came down from the heavens, he has come down from heaven. In verse 51, he declares himself to be living bread that came down from heaven. He echoes Here, his statement a few verses earlier in verse 33, where he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. And gives life to the world. These verses describe the origin of Jesus. He is emphasizing that he is uh, originated from the Father. He is uh, coming from the Father. Uh, He is being given by the Father. But more than just an origin story, uh, these statements are providing Jesus' identity as well. It can be easy for us to miss, but all throughout John's gospel, the words, I am, are constantly on Jesus' lips. I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And again in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread. The words, I am, here are constantly on Jesus' lips. And in chapter 8, we'll see this again uh, even more explicitly, where he tells the uh, disciples, I'm sorry, where he tells the Pharisees, Before Abraham was, I am. I am, as I'm sure you remember, is the covenant name that God declares for himself to Israel. Yahweh. It's the name that he speaks to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
John's bringing out for us here that the, or, the origin of Jesus, he has come down from heaven, but he's also making sure that we understand the identity of Jesus. He has come down from heaven as Israel's God come among them. Jesus is telling us he is Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, come down to his people. He's come to tabernacle among his people. Jesus has stressed throughout this discourse that he himself is the true revelation of the Father. And again, this is a, another one of John's central themes in his gospel. One of John's central points is that if, if you want to know the Father, you have to look to Jesus because God, has, God the Father has revealed himself in the person of his Son. God is revealing himself in the person of Jesus. In the prologue to John's gospel, we read, we read that no one has ever seen God. The only God, the Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And then in this chapter, he is the one whom God the Father, upon whom God the Father has set his seal. The work of the Father, we're told, is that we believe in Jesus, the one whom he has sent. God is at work revealing himself to Israel, and his, his work involves uh, making, uh, causing us to believe in his Son, giving us faith in his Son. Again in John 6, we see in verse 45 through 47, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. There is one who has seen the Father, and that's the Son. And it's this Son now who comes down from heaven, who comes among Israel, revealing the Father. Jesus came to reveal God the Father. He came to disclose the Father. And we don't have to worry, we don't have to wonder uh, whether or not uh, we can truly know the Father through Jesus. Uh, we don't have to wonder about whether or not this is an accurate representation. In John 14, we're told, whoever has seen me, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, for all eternity are mutually indwelling one another. Uh, Jesus abides in the Father, and the Father abides in the Son. And so the, the, when the Son comes to dwell among us, the Father is among us, because the Father eternally abides in fellowship with the Son. Jesus is revealing to us the Father. If you want to know, if you want to know what God's like, you don't have to wonder. You can look to the pages of Scripture and see who Jesus is. This is who God is. Jesus reveals the Father as the one who gives himself. When Yahweh most fully discloses himself to Israel, he does so by taking on flesh in order to give that flesh as bread upon which the world may feed and have life. He reveals the Father as one who gives, one who, uh, who gives for the life of the world. He gives his Son for the life of the world. Jesus truly and accurately reveals the Father to us. And this is really good news for us. This is gospel news, but it gets better. Jesus is constantly emphasizing throughout John's gospel, again, that the Father, uh, yes, is revealed as the one who abides in the Son, and the Son abides in the Father, but what's more, the Son invites us to abide in himself, so that we too may abide in the fellowship that Father and Son and Spirit share together for all eternity. Jesus gives himself to us so that we may abide in him and join in the fellowship of the life of God. Jesus gives himself to us to abide 
uh, so that we may abide in him and abide in the Father through him. He tells us that he's giving his flesh as life for the world. Jesus gives his flesh as bread for the life of the world. And this giving of his flesh, uh, where, does it, where do we see this take place? Where does Jesus give his flesh? Of course, it's as he lays down his body, as he uh, lays down his flesh on the cross, sheds his blood on the cross. On the cross, he gave himself, he gave himself up for the life of the world by sacrificing his flesh and blood to win the victory over death for us. And here in this discourse, he zeroes in on what in particular he means when he says that he is the bread of heaven. It's not simply that, it's not simply that true doctrine about Christ is the bread of life and that we receive in, uh, this bread by belief in him. Of course, that's true. We receive this bread by believing who Christ is. But it's not simply that. And it's not simply his moral teaching or his ethical teaching and that we feast on this bread by following in his, uh, his moral example that he sets for us. Of course, that's true as well. We receive Christ as we follow in his commandments. Uh, if we look to John's uh, epistles, we see that those who abide in Christ will keep his commandments. But that's not all that he has in mind here. Rather, it's the fullness of his person, and in particular, his flesh that he gives as bread. It's the flesh of Christ that we need in order to receive eternal life. Jesus gives uh, his, his whole person for us, and it's fellowship with the whole person of Christ that we need. See, it's in the flesh that the reign of death is made manifest to us. Paul tells us of the spread of death under the headship of Adam. In Romans 5, he says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Death reigns over humanity in, under Adam, and death spreads. Uh, you can look through all throughout uh, the Old Covenant law and see that death spreads, not life. In the Old Covenant, what spreads is death. If you come in contact with death, either literal death with a corpse or ceremonial uncleanness, it spreads, right? And you have to go through their proper cleansings. As we see in the Gospels, though, that's reversed. Jesus comes in contact with, with the dead and with the unclean. But death doesn't spread to him. Rather, he spreads life. And that's what we need. Our humanity needs not simply new, uh, not simply true doctrine, not simply a new renewed moral zeal. We need a resurrection. We need life. What humanity needed was a resurrection and deliverance from flesh and captivity to sin and death. And that is what we are given. We're given a new Adam. We're given a second, a last Adam in Christ. See, humanity by nature partakes in the flesh of Adam. But by the Spirit, we are born again, born from above, as we're told in John 3. God baptizes us into new birth by water and the Spirit into union with the last Adam, into union with Jesus, through whom not death reigns, but eternal life. This is emphasized all throughout this discourse, that the bread that he gives is the bread of life, that union with the body and blood of Jesus gives life. He says over and over uh, in this discourse that he will raise on the last day those who feed on his body, those who drink his blood, those who partake of the person of Christ, those who are united to the person of Christ, receive life. We receive resurrection life. We partake of that body and blood by faith, by union with Christ, as we are 
brought into union with Christ by the Spirit, we receive his body, we receive his blood, we are united to his body, we become a part of his body. And we, yes, receive that body and blood at the Eucharist, at the Lord's table. We come and receive a real participation in his risen flesh. Once again, this, this supper is not intended simply to remind us of Christ's death, simply to bring his death to our memory. Uh, and it's not simply an empty, an empty symbol intended to produce a, a moral effect upon us. But no, Jesus tells us, this is my body. This is my blood. John's Gospel doesn't include an account of the institution of the Lord's Supper in the way that the uh, synoptic Gospels that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Uh, his theology of the Lord's Supper, his theology of communion is focused here in John 6. Jesus describes his coming death on um, his coming death on the cross, and now in this text describes how we participate, how we participate in that self-gift. He begins using some more direct and shocking language to describe the way that we are to feed on him. Uh, he, he moves from simply saying that you are to eat my flesh, uh, eat my body, uh, to, uh, to telling us that we are to feed. And the term that he uses is, is almost uh, graphic in nature. In, in verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And it could be translated uh, chewing, whoever chews. Uh, that's, that's pretty graphic and even uncomfortable for us. And uh, it's part of why the early church was often accused of cannibalism, because those on the outside couldn't understand the way that the church speaks about how we fellowship with Christ, how we receive his body and blood. Jesus says, though, you must feast, you must feed, you must chew on my flesh, drink my blood. It's true food, true drink. Jesus gives himself to us as we receive him by faith, and we continue to participate in that uh, union with Christ in the uh, participation we have in his body and blood each week as we come to the table. Of course, we aren't to uh, assume that this means there's some mystical, magical transformation. In a few moments, we're not going to witness the bread that we have here on the table and the wine magically transform in, uh, substantially into the body and blood of Christ, as some uh, in the church understand it and th- Throughout history, uh, there has been, of course, a lot of controversy around this. How is it, though, that we participate in the body and blood of the Lord here at the table? Because we do participate. We have to believe that by faith. Well, Jesus tells us in the portion we heard in our lesson today, do you take offense at this, he says? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's told his disciples that they must feed on his flesh, They must receive his body and blood. But now he's telling them he's going to ascend. He's going to go up to the Father. He's going to ascend into the heavens. And at the end of the gospel, they'll they'll see him ascend bodily into the heavens. They're going to feed on his body and his blood, but now his body and blood are absent. We we talk of a, a real presence of the Lord at the table, but there's also a real absence, isn't there? Because Jesus... Uh, still exists as uh, a human person. He still has a, a resurrected body in the heavens, but it's in the heavens, right? It's not, we don't see his body here. We don't see Jesus' resurrection body. He is, in a, in a true sense, really absent. But by the Spirit, he tells us, we receive him. By the Spirit, he is present with us. By the Spirit, we commune in his body and blood at his table. He says it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
in our Reformed tradition, this has been a, uh, a key to understand what's happening here at the Lord's table. Calvin emphasized that we come to the table and we truly are present with the risen Christ. And it's by the Spirit that we come. That we, it's by the Spirit that we are present with him. And it's by the Spirit that we receive his body and blood and the bread and wine. So when we celebrate the supper, we are receiving his body and blood. We are proclaiming his death until he comes, as we're told. But we're receiving not simply the body and blood of a crucified Savior. We're receiving the body and blood of a crucified and risen Savior. As we said, this, this uh, discourse emphasizes the life-giving nature of this bread from heaven, the life-giving nature of his body and blood. He tells us that he is going to raise up on the last day those who receive his body and blood. The Eucharist is a feast of the resurrection. The Eucharist is, in a sense, an inbreaking into our present reality of the future resurrection for us. Here at the Lord's table, we receive the food of the present resurrection. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we've been baptized into Christ's death and his resurrection. And he makes present-day application of that resurrection, of the union with the resurrected Lord. He says, so walk in the newness of life. That's a present-time application of the resurrection. And this feast is a present-day participation in the reality of the resurrection. This is where that resurrection life that we, that we have in the Spirit is nourished. But it's also a foretaste because we're told we, we participate in the resurrection life now. We walk in newness of life now by the Spirit. But he's also promised to us that our bodies will be raised on the last day, that we will share in the resurrection bodily just as our Lord has. This feast is a foretaste for us of the future resurrection. And it's a foretaste for us of the future feast that we'll share the future marriage supper of the Lamb, the bridal feast. We have a foretaste of that here. We receive that by faith. As we said, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding that goes around uh, about the Lord's table. Uh, there's uh, the, the idea that there's some transubstantiation of the elements, that there's a transformation of the body and blood. And uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, this has been the uh, uh, dogma for, uh, for a long time. And we, we want to avoid any kind of superstitious um, or you know, what borders on kind of a magical, mystical understanding of the Lord's Supper. There isn't a transformation of the blood and wine that takes place, but there is a transformation that takes place here at the Lord's table, isn't there? And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, sorry, verse, starting in verse 16. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. There is a great transformation that takes place each week as we receive the Lord's Supper. What is it that's being transformed, though? Paul tells us it's not what's here on the table that's being transformed. It's you. It's us as the body of Christ. We receive the body and blood of Christ. We participate. We fellowship with Christ by the Spirit. And we are transformed into the body and blood of Christ. We are the body of Christ. As Augustine told us, we become what we receive. We receive him by faith. Uh, we receive him here at the table by faith and by the Spirit. 
and we become what we receive. We are the body of Christ, and that life as his body is nourished here as we receive this true food, this true drink. Paul also emphasizes that it's one body, it's one loaf that we share, and we become one body together. It's one of the tragic ironies of church history is that the, uh, the feast that's intended to give unity to the church, the feast, the sacrament of unity, is uh, historically one of the greatest areas of division for the church. There aren't, uh, there aren't many issues for the church that are so divisive as the Lord's Supper, uh, sadly. You, you can go to, to another church that otherwise is, is faithful, that loves the Lord, that uh, may differ from us in other areas, but during the supper, you may want to come and, no, sorry, you're, you're not, you can't come because of your understanding of the Lord's Supper is not on par with ours. Or, and that can be a temptation for us, can't it, to, uh, to be so, uh, so particular about, about uh, uh, what's happening here at the table that anyone who has a, a, a misunderstanding or who sees it differently is, uh, is not allowed. That's, that's been a temptation for the church throughout history. But we need to understand this is not our table. This is not the, primarily the church's table. This is the Lord's table. And he invites all of his children to this table. This is a sacrament of unity, and it is to give unified life to the church. So throughout this chapter, we've seen Jesus giving himself for the life of the world. And we are called to receive Jesus, receive him by faith, Uh, receive him as the one whom God the Father has set his seal, Uh, receive him as the one who reveals the Father to you, Uh, receive him and participate continually in his body and blood. As we come to the table in a few moments, we'll be receiving the Lord, fellowshipping in his death and participating in his resurrection and we'll be receiving him as one body, one people. Uh, so uh, let us give thanks as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and uh, fellowship with him and with one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your grace to us. Thank you, Father, that you have come to us in the person of your Son, that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son. Lord, we thank you that we know you in him. Father, we pray that we would continually be coming to you in faith, that we would continually be feeding upon your Son, that our life in union with him would be nourished by your Spirit, that we would give thanks always for this gift you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, and ages of ages. come now to the Lord's table, as we saw in in our sermon text this morning and in in the sermon, uh, this sacrament is a sacrament of unity. In the fall of humanity, uh, we immediately saw division where there was union, uh, division between uh, man and woman, hostility between man and woman, uh, division between the, the creatures of the earth, and as Uh, As humanity's history unfolds in in Genesis, we see that division deepen continually. We see uh, division between brother and brother, uh, Cain and Abel. We see the divisions of their lines as uh, hostility grows. The fall brought about uh, disunity where God had 
had brought unity in his creation. Uh, sin brings uh, strife. Sin brings hostility. It brings unity. The work of God and his son, however, is to bring a new creation, to bring about a new humanity in union with Jesus. And as we come to the table, we, as we saw, come to a, a table for one body. We come to receive the body of Christ as his body. We come to receive this and to be nourished as his one body. This is a sacrament of unity. This is uh, historically the church's understanding of this. This is where our chief unity is expressed here at the table. So as, as we come to the table today, uh, let us understand and, and, and seek for, uh, strive for that unity that God gives us at the table, that God gives us in union with his son. Uh, as you look around you, uh, at the, the people that God has brought you into fellowship with here in this church, uh, God gives you his son uh, to feast on, and we, we receive his son together as one. Uh, you, are, you as a congregation are to be further brought into unity each Lord's Day that we come together. Uh, as we consider the uh, other believers, other churches around this, uh, around this community, around the uh, uh, city that God's called you to, around our nation and around the world, uh, let us further seek unity uh, because of the sacrament that God has given us. We receive his body and his blood together as one people, and so our, our striving ought to be for, for unity, for peace, as God's people. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.